blameless, which meant he lived with integrity. He wasn't two-faced. He wasn't a hypocrite. And he walked with God. He got along well with God. He had this close fellowship, communion with God. The result of Noah finding favor with God is that God brought him into his confidence and said, hey, here's what I'm going to do, and here's how you can get involved in what I'm going to do. Today we're going to look at the flood, which is an incredibly uplifting story for all of us. God wipes out everything on the face of the earth. He saves um, eight people and a couple of all kind, a couple of the different types of animals. Before we jump into that, I wanted to give a little bit, I, I, I was trying, I was debating how much of the, you get into all the science and all of those things. I'm not a scientist. You have to be a geologist and a something with weather and all these different things to understand the plausibility of the flood. But I did want to say this about it. The stories in the Old Testament, sometimes it's easy to say, you know what, it really doesn't matter if those happen. What The important thing is the truth that I can pull out from those things. It actually does matter if those things happen because what God says is you'll know who I am based on what I do. So if you look at my actions in history, then you can draw conclusions about my character. So if the actions didn't actually occur, then we don't have anything upon which to base conclusions about who God is. So God says you can know that I'm a deliverer because at this time in history, I took somewhere between 600,000 and 1 million Israelites and led them out of slavery in Egypt across the Red Sea into the Promised Land. So see, I've done that once. So when I tell you I'm a deliverer, you can believe me because I've delivered in the past. If that never happened, if God didn't deliver the Israelites, then how do we know he's a, del- a deliverer? How can we trust him to do that for us? And so that the events matter. For us as Christians, our entire faith rests on an event, the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we just wasted $285,000 renovating a building. There's no reason for us to gather here at all. We need to do something else with the money. There's no reason for us to be gathering in Jesus' name if he wasn't actually raised from the dead. If you can't trust the events in the Bible that the authors are saying actually happen, if they didn't really happen, then you can't base anything upon, about God's character or his um, disposition towards us on those events. If the events didn't happen, then we don't know anything about God. And the second thing I would say, just plain and simple, is Jesus believed these things happened. He talks about Noah. He talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about Jonah and the whale. I know sometimes it's difficult to say, yeah, I believe the stuff that happened in that book because it makes you feel a little backward when you look at some of the objections. My encouragement to you, if that's a hang-up for you, is to dig in. There's some really, really brilliant people who believe in the veracity of the Bible. He would say, yeah, these things happen, and I can help you figure out how to connect all of those dots. It's not ironclad. These are historical events that can't be repeated, so you can't scientifically prove history. You just can't do that. You can't scientifically prove the Civil War happened. It's not a repeatable event. But there's some brilliant minds out there that can help you put the pieces together if that's something that you struggle with or something that someone you love struggles with. That can be an honest struggle for some. So that's for what it's worth. Just real quick, a couple of issues people have with the flood. I'm going to give you the broad 30,000 foot view. You can dive in if you want. Global or local? Was it over the whole earth or just in the place where Noah lived? I say global. It's the most straightforward reading of the Bible. And you'll see that as we get into it. The New Testament refers to it or speaks to it in global language as well. There's over 200 flood legends out of all these major ancient cultures. You can see the stats there. All that says to me is they all had a story about a flood. 
So it didn't just happen in one place because they all have a story about it. So to me, it's global. What's next? Please. Could all the animals fit on the ark? Big question. Yes, they could. I'm not going to overwhelm you with math here. Um, The key is this idea of kinds. What's a kind? Noah brought two of all the unclean kinds and seven of all the clean kinds. Kind is kind of like, it's like a species is what we could say. So he didn't bring two black labs and two golden labs and two labradoodles. Like he didn't do that. He just brought two dogs is what he brought. And so you have these species. So he brought two dogs. And the guys who study this taxonomist, they say there's 17,600 species of animals that breathe air. Obviously, all the fish, they didn't have any problems with the flood. Everything that lives underwater, no problems with the flood. Just things that breathed air had a problem with the flood. So all of those things, there's 17,600 of them. Multiply that by two, it gives you 35,000 animals. He brought seven of the clean ones, round up to 50,000. Average size of one of these animals is a house cat. Make it a sheep, just in case they're really big. The volume of the ark, 569 railroad cars. Massive. Each railroad car. You can go, if you want, if you have 240 sheep in a railroad car, you can go see. 240 sheep fit in a railroad car. So the, the, on the ark, I don't want you thinking of the Atlanta Zoo where the gorillas are in their natural habitat. I want you to remember Willie B when he was in that glass cage with the TV. That's what they had in the ark. Really small places just to keep them like this. They weren't roaming around. That word for what he built for them could be called nests. Really small. So anyway. You can cram 240 sheep into a railroad car. So it takes 209 railroad cars to cram 50,000 sheep in, and that's what we've got. We've got 57, um, we've got 50,000 animals. That's 37% of the ark taken up with animals. I didn't count insects because they're really small. Ants don't take up any space. Mosquito, they don't take up any room. There's plenty of room for them. It's a shame that mosquitoes made it on the ark, isn't it? So, <laughs> anyway, you've got this picture. of the ark is animals, so you've got a ton left for food and for Noah and his family and everybody else. Even if the math is wrong, there's plenty of room on the ark for the animals. What are our other questions? Is there enough water? Absolutely. If the earth was a perfect sphere like a basketball, then the oceans would cover all of the land by a mile. You didn't know the earth was not a perfect sphere, did you? I did not. You know what it is? It's an oblate spheroid. Write that down. So that's, what did you learn in church today? I learned that yesterday when I read So if the earth was a perfect sphere, the water would cover it by a mile. There's plenty of water to flood the earth. Where did all the water go? It went to the ocean. Seventy percent of the earth's surface is water. Could one family have cared for all those animals? Yes. There's some folks who've studied this stuff. These farms that have their non-mechanized farms, they show how one family could take care of thousands and thousands of animals. Most animals, when they enter some type of stressful situation, which the ark would have been, they dial down, they get lethargic and dormant. Some even, it's a state leading towards hibernation, so they wouldn't have required a ton of care. Was the ark seaworthy? It looks like a big old rectangle. How does it float? Actually, it is. Some guys that have studied the models of the ark say it's the perfect ratio for what it was, length to width, six to one. Uh, They've done some model testing on it. It could have rotated 90 degrees and, and righted itself and withstood waves 100 to 200 feet high. So that's just, yes, the story is plausible if you need that. If you want to dig in deeper, there's tons of information out there. I can direct you to it if you desire. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through chapter 7 and 8. I'm going to make a few brief comments along the way, and then we'll try to pull some things out about God's character on the back end. 
Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I'll send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 when the flood waters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, the birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. After the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of all the heavens were open. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So just to be clear, you've got, somehow you've got rain, water coming from above and water coming from below. I read that 70% of what comes out of a volcano is water. There are volcanoes underground, and so maybe that's where some of this water comes from. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephath, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, enter the ark. They have with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. That's one question. How did Noah round up all the animals? They came to him. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut them in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Sounds like a global flood to me. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that that swarm over the earth and all mankind Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So you've got Noah enters the ark, rains for 40 days. 150 days is considered the flood. Then starting in chapter 8, hang in there with me. God remembered Noah, beautiful four-word phrase there. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. He sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. And the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Those mountains are in Turkey. People are looking for the ark there. They haven't found it. It is made out of wood. It seems like to me it would, have, it would disintegrate, but who knows. People are looking for it in Turkey. They've never found it. After 40 days, Noah opened the windows he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. So a raven, they can, they're scavengers. They can eat dead things. So he sends the raven out, figuring it can fend for itself with all of the floating carcasses, the raven never comes back. 
Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. Doves need vegetation to eat. So that will give Noah a better sense of what's happening. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to him in the ark. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So that means there's at least... Things are dry enough that things are beginning to grow again. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days, sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, so this is a year that he's been doing this, Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. So the total cycle here is about 370 days. Then, Noah, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and, and their wives. Bring out every living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. That sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark one after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. It's probably why he took seven clean animals, is because he was going to sacrifice some on the back end. Then the Lord, smelled, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So what God promises there is he says, I'm not going to do this again. There's not going to be this global catastrophe again. You guys can count on kind of environmental predictability. There's going to be seasons. There's, you don't need to worry about the next time it rains whether it's ever going to stop. And so that's, kind of, that's God's promise. We'll look at that more next week when we look at the covenant he makes with Noah in chapter 9. What I want us to do, I said at the beginning that one of the reasons it's important to say, hey, these things happen, is we can draw conclusions about God's character based on what he did. And so there's some things we can look at. God does a handful of things in chapter 7 and 8, and we can draw some conclusions about his character based on that and say, what does that mean for us? We just read, we're not going to get flooded again. So we don't necessarily need to worry about how to build an ark or how to get the animals. or None of those things impact us because it's not going to happen again. But the same God who was active in Genesis 7 and 8 is still active now. And so there may be some things we can learn about his character that do impact where we live um, right now. One other side point I just wanted to note. It's interesting that God says when he's saying, you know what, I'm never going to do this again. He says every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. The flood didn't change anybody. People are still wicked. That What the flood did was it just cleansed the earth. We said last week, Things had gotten so bad, it was going downhill without a parking brake, that God had to hit the reset button. That's what the flood was. It was him going reset. It didn't necessarily change anyone internally. Think about what taking a shower does. Washes the, washes the grime off. It doesn't do anything for your heart. Same thing is true of this flood. All it did was allow God to cleanse the earth, which had become corrupted. That's what we looked at in Genesis 6. The earth was corrupt, and so it allowed God to cleanse it. But it doesn't necessarily change anything fundamental about what it means to be a person. The people born after the flood were just as fallen as the people born before. Somebody I read, he said, you know what? God could send a flood every day. He could send a flood every day because there's so much wickedness in the world. And there's some truth 
to that. So there wasn't anything necessarily transformative about the flood in terms of what it does to people. It transformed the world, and it gave God a chance to, to hit reset and start over through Noah. But it didn't make people better post-flood or pre-flood. So a couple of things, I think they're up here on the screen. Four things that we see God did with some questions I want you to think about. So God sent rain to judge the earth. So what does that tell us about him? It says he's a judge. And I would say he's a just judge. Why just? Because the only people who perished were the wicked, the evil, the corrupt, the unrighteous. Those were the ones. It's difficult for us to imagine a scenario where there are only eight righteous people. How in the world can there be a population, however large, where there's only eight people who get it? There's only eight people who are righteous. But that's the world that we live, that's the world that Noah inhabited. That's why the God's response was so drastic, was because the world was so fallen at that time. It was so corrupt, he didn't have any choice but to wipe it out. I wonder, if he hadn't, would those eight even have made it? Would there have been any righteous remnant that would have gotten through? If, they, if the numbers had dropped to you've only got one family that makes it on the ark. It took him somewhere between 60 and 100 years to build it. Nobody else got on board. If it, according to Jesus, people were just living their life in the days of Noah. Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Second Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness so that... To me, he was, he was communicating something to people, and they just weren't responding. The reason only eight people were saved is because there were only eight people who wanted to be saved. And the rest of them perished because they're wicked, they're corrupt, they're violent, all the things that we read about in Genesis 6. So to me, God is just. I said a minute ago, somebody, I read somebody, he said God could send a flood every day. He could. The ark would have to be a whole lot bigger because there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who would be on the ark today, not eight. Not because any of us are perfect, but because we've exchanged our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. So we're righteous in God's eyes, not because of anything that we've done, but because we've recognized, hey, if you're going to judge wickedness, if you're going to judge evil, if you're going to judge corruption, then that means you're going to judge me. And I don't want that. So rather than meeting you as a judge, let me meet you as a savior first. And I'll take your righteousness for my unrighteousness. That's what puts me on the ark. And so my question to you, plain and simple, is are you ready to meet God as a judge? Because you will. There's this thing in all of us that says evil needs to be dealt with. Evil, wickedness, corruption, unrighteousness. We all have this thing in us that says that that shouldn't go on. Somebody should do something about that. We have different hot-button issues, but the underlying fact for all of us is something should be done about that. The only people who don't think that are sociopaths. Everybody else says that that is not right and somebody should do something about it. And the question is just who's going to do something about it? Who's going to judge it, God or somebody else? I pick him because he's the only one that can see into the hearts of men and women. Everybody else judges based on externals. I pick him because he has more invested in us than anyone else. I pick him because he knows everything. And I pick him because his character is perfect. And I pick him because he doesn't just say, I'm going to judge wickedness and evil and corruption. He says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come out from under that judgment. I'll pay the price of my own judgment on those things in order for you to experience life and to experience it fully. So my question again, are you ready to face him as a judge? It's interesting, this idea of God shutting the door. That's this next thing. God, God shuts the door. Noah and his family enter the ark. It says the Lord shut him in. Second Peter, when it talks about the ark, it says that God, 
using the ark as a picture, says God knows how to rescue godly people from trial, even as he punishes the wicked. I wonder, I saw that David Scott was showing the trailer of that new Noah movie um, in there, and I saw part of it, and at the end, when it's starting to rain, people are like attacking the ark. I don't know if they did, but I'm sure somebody was knocking on the door when they realized it's not quitting. It's raining, and there's no more high ground. I'm sure at some point somebody knocked on the door, but the time had ended. And we said, oh, that's so cruel. Why didn't God let them in? He gave them 120 years to respond. And they didn't. This is what Second Peter says about all of that. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised, talking about Jesus, saying he's going to return. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So what Peter is saying is it happened once, it happened again. You can learn something about God's character based on his past actions. He judged the world once, and he judged wickedness once, and he judged it completely, and finally we read every, every, every died. Only Noah was saved. That's it. And those on the ark with him. And so what Peter is saying, draw a parallel, he's going to do it again, and this time it's not going to be this external cleansing with water, it's going to be, fi- it's going to be with fire Verse 10 says, and everything in the earth will be laid bare. There's this idea to me of water being superficial, cleansing, and fire reveals what's inside of us. And that's where we're headed. It's this judgment. And what Peter says is, don't let them, just like in the days of Noah, nobody believed. They didn't believe it was going to happen until it was too late. He's saying, so draw a parallel. This is going to happen again. Don't allow the fact that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, I'm coming back. And he hasn't. Don't allow that to fool you into a false sense of complacency that he's not going to return. Don't allow that to fool you into this false sense of belief that, it's a, that, he's, that wickedness and evil and corruption are just going to run on unchecked. If God allowed that, he's not a good father. What good father sits by indefinitely while their children suffer and struggle and are frustrated and are lonely and are sick and are dying? Nobody. When they can step in and do something about it. And there will be a day when Jesus returns and he's going to do something about it. And the day when he does something about it means our, our part is done. Whatever decision we've made at that point is final. The door of the ark is closed and we're either in or we're out. When he returns or when we die, whichever comes first, that's it for us. That's the day. The writer of Hebrews says, don't, today, don't harden your heart when you hear the voice of God. There's opportunity now. Peter says, don't confuse the time that you have. For God being slow to act. He's being kind. He's giving you space. He gave Noah's generation 120 years. He's given us 2,000 plus whenever. It's not because he doesn't care. It's because he wants as many as possible on the ark. That's what he says in 1 Timothy. He desires all men and women to be saved. So my question to you. Are you ready to meet him as the judge? And if you haven't met him as the savior. All you have is your track record. And no matter how good it is. It's not good enough to get you on board. Meet him as the Savior first. And then recognize that he seals and protects. He can guard the godly. That's what he says. He can protect the godly. Even as he punishes the wicked. 
If you're experiencing difficulty in your life, my question is, is he a strong tower to you? That's Old Testament language. Is he a refuge to you, a sanctuary to you? Is he your defense? If you would say, I'm getting beat up, where are you running to this morning? Interesting, the way God protected Noah was not by zapping him out of the earth. They lived in it. He put them on an ark. He sealed them through. He didn't remove them from. And that's often what he does in our life. Pray for circumstances to change. Absolutely. And until they do, recognize the promise of God to you is to walk with you in the midst of those things. He walks through with people through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't prevent us from going through the valley of the shadow of death. He just says, I'm going to be with you when you do. He doesn't say bad things are never going to happen. He just says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you when they do. He's not the cause of any of that. But he is in the midst of all of those circumstances and will redeem them if we allow him to. And so my question to you this morning is if, you, if you're struggling, if you would say evil has touched you in some way, are you running to him as a tower this morning? Is he your defense? Is he your sanctuary? Is he your refuge? God remembered Noah. Beautiful phrase. God's omniscient. He doesn't forget anything. So why does he have to remember? The idea behind that word is he acts according to something he said in the past. So when God remembers Noah, what he's saying is, I said I was going to get you through this, and so now I'm going to act accordingly. In Exodus 2, um, Moses says, God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does he do? He, remember, he says, oh, I remember them. I made this covenant with them, so I'm going to act accordingly and deliver their descendants from slavery and bondage. Genesis, late 20s, early 30s, God remembers Rachel, that she's going to be the one through whom the... He's going to carry on his line. And so she becomes, she gets pregnant. She'd been barren up to that point. Throughout the Bible, this idea of God remembering, he then acts according to something he said in the past. He doesn't forget, but it's, this is, let me see how to say this. He doesn't forget, but he needs to be reminded, if that makes sense. In Exodus 2, it says he hears the groans of the people and he remembers. It's an interesting tension, paradox. He's omniscient. He never forgets anything, but he wants us to remind him of what he said. When you read through, there's, Moses says things like, God, remember what you said about yourself. Remember who you are and then act accordingly. He wants us to approach him based on that. But for many of us, we feel like brats if we say, God, remember me. It feels selfish. It feels... Um, immature, if we were real Christians, we wouldn't worry about those things. We'd be able to rise above our circumstances, whatever that is. We would accept these things as the cross that God wants us to bear, however we spiritualize. And I think what he's saying is, why don't you just remind me? I didn't forget, but I want you to remind me. Remind me of what I said to you. And then watch me act. So my question to you is, what do you need to remind him of this morning? Is there something that God has promised in the Word that you're saying, I'm not living that? Then remind him. Is there something he's put in your heart over time and you're saying that that has not come, I'm not seeing any fruit from that. Then remind him, not like a spoiled two-year-old, but as a son or a daughter who can say to their father, remember you said this. He remembers, do you? Remember you said this. So let's, let's get on it. Let's begin, I want to see you begin to act in this way. God sends a wind, and the Bible wind is often a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. It's not here. He literally sent a wind. But it made me think about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 6. I'll send you a, 
a counselor. When we hear counselor, we think lawyer or advice giver. The Holy Spirit is neither of those things. He's a helper. That's a better word maybe. He strengthens us. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He enables us to do it. Are there places where you need to say, I need the helper this morning? There may or they may not be. Last thing, when Noah starts, when Noah sacrifices these animals, it's the first altar ever built. He sacrifices these animals, and the Bible says it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The idea behind that is it says the aroma soothed God. If you remember last week when we looked at Genesis 6, it said God was grieved. Moses says God is grieved that he made man, and his heart was filled with pain. You kind of have this picture that these sacrifices that Noah makes somehow are soothing. That's the word, soothing the heart of God. Interesting to think that Noah's sacrifices could do that. It's not the animals in and of themselves. I think it's what it represents. If you read through Exodus, a burnt offering is something that, it's an animal that's consumed completely. A lot of offerings in the Old Testament, you give a portion, you give a part. A burnt offering, you give the whole thing. If you look and see how were burnt offerings used, one of the major ways they were used was voluntarily. You could, if you wanted to make a voluntary offering to the Lord, you could make a burnt offering, and it signified complete dedication, complete devotion, complete commitment, complete consecration to him. That's this picture of the whole thing burning up. God gets all of it, 100%. And I think about that. With, that's probably what was pleasing to God. When Noah sacrificed those animals, that's fine. What he was thinking of is a picture of someone who was completely mine. He obeyed me. We read that. Noah did everything that God commanded multiple times. He, he wrapped his whole life around this ridiculous idea of building a massive boat because it was gonna, the whole world was going to flood. Who does that? He did that. It showed, this again, this complete devotion and, and commitment to the Lord. He waited over a year. I read somewhere, how about this for gross, 12 tons of manure a day on the ark. Awesome for a year of that. There are ways to deal with it, but 12 tons is 12 tons. I don't know who did the, I don't know where the testing on that came from, but there you go. He waited. Can you imagine when the dove doesn't come back the third time? Like at what point is he going, enough, we're we're done. Two months he has to wait from when that last dove doesn't return till when God says you can leave the ark. There's no indication in the Bible that God said anything to Noah during the one year that they're there. He says, get on the ark, and a year later he says, come off. That's a long time to wait in a boat for something to happen. There's an 18-inch gap between the roof of the ark and the top. That's all he got to see out. And all he saw anyway was rain and water. No idea what's going on. He waited patiently for the Lord to do whatever it was that he was going to do. It's a picture of complete commitment. Wrapped his whole life around building an ark. Waited for God to say, all right, you can get off of it now. And as soon as he gets off, he worships the Lord. So my question is, what do you smell like to the Lord? You have that, is that pleasing, that soothing aroma? It's not a performance thing at all. It's just saying, are you completely his? Are you a burnt offering? All of you is on the altar. All of you is on the table for him. 100%. There's nothing that you're keeping back. Nothing that you're withholding. Nothing that if he says, I want that, you say, can't have it. That's what it looks like to be a burnt offering. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says we're a pleasing aroma to him. And my question is, well, are, are you? Does he have all of you as much as you know? 
We don't know what would happen if there's scenarios that we can't play out in our minds. And that may be where you're going. Well, somebody had my kids and they said, denounce Jesus. Or I'm gonna, like, that's not what I'm asking. What I'm saying is as much as you know yourself, have you given him all that you are? And if the answer is yes, then you're a, then you're a burnt offering. You're this sweet-smelling sacrifice to him. You soothe him and please him. If not, then, my, then the question is, well, why not? What are you holding back? And would you be willing to give that this morning? Let's pray. We'll have ministry teams up, up in the corners. We'll leave those four questions here up on the screen. I encourage you to think through those. Two I'd highlight. If you're not ready, if you'd say, I'm not ready to meet God as a judge, then my encouragement to you is to get ready today. Meet Him as the Savior first. And then you won't be afraid when you meet Him as the judge. Because He won't be looking at your track record. He'll be looking at His sons. God, for any here this morning, they're on, the, they're on the wrong side of the ark. Without guilt, without manipulation, without a heavy hand. I just pray that you'd speak to them. And you would invite them on. And they would take you up on this incredible invitation that says, Why don't you give me all of your unrighteousness and in exchange I'll give you my righteousness. Why don't you give me the penalty that you deserve to pay for the sins that you've committed and I'll give you the life of my son. And God, I also want to pray for any here, and I think there are many, who need to remind you of something, but they feel selfish. Or they feel like, I've already tried that and it didn't work, and I'm tired of reminding him. God, I pray that you would renew hope in them this morning, that they would remind you again of the things that you've said, that they would re-up with you, and that you would move in their lives quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. And then Bo will dismiss us right after this.